Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Psalms. Actually, we're going to be in Psalm 22 just to begin with, but kind of get your fingers ready because we're going to be uh, turning to various passages this morning. This will be a very topical sermon uh, today. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you, so you can grab one and um, just turn to Psalm 22 for, for now. Um, today, I am concluding our sermon series on prayer, prayer, taking hold of God. This is our seventh Sunday in this series talking about this topic of prayer. I just want to review where we've been. It's just kind of easy sometimes to forget even the Sunday before, much less five or six Sundays before. So let me just review where we have been in this series. We began uh, seven Sundays ago looking at the model prayer. That's how we started, looking at the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray from Matthew 6. If you're looking for a good model for how to pray, you cannot go wrong by using the Lord's Prayer from Matthew Six. We went on from there to the prayer of praise in Psalm 145, and uh, we were reminded that prayer is not just asking for things, but prayer is also giving praise to God for who he is and what he's like. Uh, prayer is an act of worship, being filled with thoughts of his goodness and grace and his attributes. That's the prayer of praise. Then from there, we went to the problem of prayer, because if you think theologically, you might say, well... If God is sovereign and he's planned all things and he's in charge of all things that are going to happen from the beginning to the end, what possible usefulness do my prayers serve? Why should I pray if God has planned all things? And so we consider the problem of prayer from Acts 4. Then we consider prayer in community. We challenge the idea that prayer is just an individual private thing. It certainly is individual, private. We pray on our own, in our room, by ourselves, but Prayer is insufficient if it's only done by ourselves. We also pray in community as the early church did and as we saw in Acts chapter 1. We talked about the prayer meeting and how important that is and how often God has in the past brought revival when God's people have gotten serious about prayer in community. And then we considered praying for others, just interceding on one another's behalf. Um, We can love each other with our feet and with our hands, but perhaps we love each other best when we're on our knees, interceding for one another. And we considered Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. And then last Sunday, we considered this topic of persistence in prayer, the parable given to us in Luke 18, the persistent widow, or the parable of the unjust judge, where Jesus says, don't lose heart, keep praying, persist, don't give up persevere even when you don't get an immediate answer. And today, we're going to consider what I'm going to say is kind of the other side of the coin from persistence in prayer. Persistence in prayer is the call on us to continue in prayer. It's our responsibility to persevere in prayer. But the other side of that coin is what is God doing when we're persisting in prayer and he's not answering? And why doesn't he answer sometimes? What we're considering today, then, is unanswered prayer. Last week, what we considered was God's delay in answering our prayers. Today, we're going to consider God's denial when we bring our prayers to him. 
There are times when he doesn't just delay, but times when he denies. There are times when God says no. What's God doing? Why does he do that? I want to make sure that we understand that we're assured. The scriptures give us great assurance that God does answer prayer. Last week we talked about people persisting in prayer for as long as 50 years before they got an answer. Today we're talking about unanswered prayer. I don't want you to get the idea that God doesn't answer prayer. He does. It's true. The scriptures promise it. I know it's happened in your life. It's happened in my life. I know what it's like to have God answer. He does reward persistence. The scriptures say we should pray in faith. James warns against praying while doubting. We should pray with no doubting. We should pray expecting he's going to answer with great faith. We should. The scripture tells us that. And yet at the same time, it's true, isn't it, that in our own experience, we know what it's like to ask and not receive, to seek and not find, and to knock on doors and find that they're not opened. We know what that's like. And when that happens, sometimes we begin asking, is God even listening? Is God paying attention? Does God care? Is God even there? So there are many examples in the scriptures of God answering prayer, but I was surprised as I was developing this sermon of how many examples there are in the scriptures of God not answering prayer. Actually, there's quite a few. And... uh, I hope that's not discouraging, it's actually encouraging to me. It just tells me that the scriptures are true to life. The scriptures embody what it's like to be a Christian living in a hard and difficult world. And so there are at least three examples of God not answering prayer. We're going to look at each of those in succession. But we're going to begin by just looking at this short passage from Psalm 22. So if you'd please stand, and I'm just going to read these first two verses uh, because... This is a lament um, written by David, and here David is just expressing the, the anguish of what it's like to have his prayers not answered. So this will just launch us into these other texts that we'll consider as we answer this question. So here's what David says, Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Holy Spirit, would you please come and open our hearts and minds to be encouraged by wonderful things in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. <clears throat> Amen. You can be, seat- you can be seated. <clears throat> so we're going to answer this question. <clears throat> What, why would God choose not to answer your prayers? <clears throat> what, what reasons would he have for not answering your prayers? And so, again, three passages. I want to ask you to turn, first of all, to the book of 2 Corinthians 12. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at verses 7 to 9. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 9. This is on page 564, if you have a paperback Bible. Again, one of three possible reasons why God would not answer prayers. And and this first uh, answer is this. God might not answer your prayer to teach you something good. It's one possible reason. So let me just read this. Chapter 12, verse 7 through 9. Paul says, To keep me from being too elated, 
by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So many of you are probably familiar with this passage, the, the famous thorn in the flesh passage. Uh, Paul is given this, this thorn, uh, some kind of a painful difficulty sent to him by God uh, through the instrumentality of Satan. Somehow God uses Satan to send this thorn to Paul. There's a lot of debate about what this, this thorn might be. He says it's a thorn in the flesh that suggests maybe a physical ailment of some sort. We know that Paul had an eyesight problem. He might be referring to that. Uh, Some theorize that that he struggled with malaria, so it might be some kind of an illness. Uh, It could just be the harassment that he dealt with in the church or persecution that he suffered from the Jews. Um, Actually, I'm kind of thankful that we don't know exactly what that thorn was because that means you can take whatever thorn in your life and read it into what Paul is talking about. I think in God's wisdom, he left that open for us. We all have thorns in our lives. All of you, either now or maybe in the past, have had a thorn in your side and you've not known how to deal with it. And so the question is open for us to consider how this might apply to our own thorns. In any case, we know that this is something hard for Paul. This was a significant burden from him. This grieved him. It weighed him down so much that according to verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. He prayed. He pleaded. That word for plead can be translated um, beg. He was begging God, Lord, take this thorn from me. Take it away. Now, sometimes we can understand why certain prayers might not be answered. I mean, sometimes we pray from sinful motives, right? I mean, just to use extreme examples, if somebody were to pray, oh, Lord, please make the traffic clear out so that I can get away after I rob this bank, you know? Or, Lord, please uh, give me persuasive speech so that I can lie effectively in this situation and get out of this problem. Or, Lord, I'm so mad at this person, I really want to inflict as much pain and displeasure on him as possible. Please help me to get my revenge. We might find ourselves praying, maybe not in those extreme examples, but for things that actually are not honoring to God, and this be very clear why he wouldn't answer those kinds of prayers, right? And Psalm 66 tells us this, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So that is one possible reason that God doesn't answer prayer, is, is you're praying with sinful motives but what about when we're praying for for good things like what Paul is praying for here he's just asking for this ailment this thorn this thorn to be removed what could possibly be wrong with that and you might be asking the same question as you think of things that you've prayed for or are praying for maybe healing from a disease or praying for a spouse or praying for a child or a grandchild or the conversion of a friend or a spouse or a son or a daughter or a mother, or a father. Those are good things. Those are godly things that you're asking God to do. These are things good for his kingdom. Why in the world would he not say yes to those? 
And so here's Paul. You can imagine maybe what his thought process might be like. Lord, if I don't have this thorn, think of how much more effective I'll be for your kingdom. Lord, if this thorn is taken away, think of all the more churches I can plant. Lord, if I don't have this thorn anymore, think of how much more effective I'll be when I preach the gospel. Oh, Lord, without this thorn, think of how many more souls might be saved from me. Think of all I can do for your kingdom, oh, Lord, if you would just remove this thorn. Well, what is God's answer? Verse 9, after Paul pleads three times, verse 9 says this, but he said to me, the Lord said this, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Here is Paul thinking, what I need, Lord, is the opportunity to be stronger and better And Lord, if you take this thorn away from me, that's what I'll be for your glory. And what God says in response is, no, Paul, you don't need to be stronger. You need to be weaker. I'm not taking away the thorn. What you need, Paul, is not to have more to be proud about. You need to be humbled. And so in verse 7, that's what he says, right? The thorn was given me to keep me from being too elated. He had experienced these visions and these amazing kind of supernatural experiences and apparently had a tendency to become prideful. And so in response to this prayer, God says, no, I don't want you strong, Paul. I want you weak. And the way for you to be weak is for that thorn to continue in your side. The thorn will remain. The answer is no. And you look at how Paul responds at the end of verse 9. Uh, God said to me, Lord, the Lord said to me, my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, he says, look, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's after God said no, it's almost like Paul said, yeah, you know, I get it. I see why you have denied this, Lord. And so now I'm not boasting in my strength. I'm going to boast in my weakness for your glory, oh God. It's a lesson that God had to teach Paul through the sending of a thorn. Apparently, there was no other way for Paul to get it. So, one reason God might choose not to answer your prayer is to teach you something, like he taught Paul. Paul needed to learn that power comes through weakness. He didn't know that before, the thorn. After the thorn and after the denial of his request, he knew that, and he wrote it down in Scripture for us so that you would know it also. So, maybe God is trying to teach you something. Maybe he has denied your prayer because he's trying to teach you patience, maybe humility, maybe faith. Maybe he's confronting something in you. Maybe he's confronting idolatry or selfishness or entitlement or a lack of faith. Maybe he just wants to teach you that even if you don't get what you've prayed for, he is sufficient for all the needs of your soul. Maybe God wants you to get that somehow. And in his wisdom, the way that's going to happen is by saying no to your prayer. There's a woman named Henrietta Mears. She was a very famous um, author, Christian author in the 1900s, developed some Sunday school curriculum that became very popular. She's a pretty famous person. Uh, struggled a lot with health, and she had her own problems with eyesight, actually, just like Paul did. 
And Henrietta Mears said this once, I believe my greatest spiritual asset throughout my entire life has been my failing sight, for it has kept me absolutely dependent upon God. I'm sure she probably prayed, Lord, give me my eyesight. God said no. And through that, she learned dependence upon God. That's what God taught her through that. And apparently, her eyesight was the means by which that would happen. So this might be one reason that God has said no, to teach you something good. But here's another reason, possible reason why God might be not answering your prayer, and that is to show you a better way. So let's turn to John 11 now. John 11. I'll read verses 32 to 37. Uh, now we're getting into something a little, more, <clears throat> a little more personal here in John 11. We've got the story of these sisters, Mary and Martha. They have a brother named Lazarus. Lazarus becomes sick. And the sisters call out to Jesus. They ask for Jesus' help. Uh, essentially a prayer. I, I mean, you know, when we read the Gospels and we see the disciples speaking to Jesus, you know, I don't know that that's really a, a prayer. It's them relating to Jesus when he had his earthly ministry on the earth. But in this case, they're calling out to Jesus for help. This is essentially a prayer. Mary and Martha, they want Jesus to come and heal their brother. He's sick. Another very good request, right? And these sisters have a lot of good reasons to believe that Jesus is going to answer this prayer because at the start of chapter 11, we know that Mary is the one who anointed Jesus with ointment, and she's the one who wiped his feet with her hair. Um, 11 verse 5 tells us that Jesus loved Mary and loved Martha and loved Lazarus. I mean, they had a good relationship. They had a tight relationship. They were intimate with one another, and so they pray, oh, Lord, please heal my brother Lazarus. Lord, he is your friend. Would you please heal him? We know you love us. We know that you love him, so please heal. Well, Jesus was away. Uh, this event is described in the city of Bethany, and Jesus is elsewhere, and so he's about two miles away, and so when they call out to him, what does Jesus do? Well, if you look at verse 6, you see what he does. When he hears, it says, that Lazarus was ill, he stays two days longer in the place where he was. You'd think it would say when, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he dropped everything and ran directly to where Mary and Martha was so he can heal Lazarus. No, that's not what it says. He stays two days longer. In other words, he says, no, I'm not coming. And in the meantime, Lazarus dies. So Lazarus passed away. Jesus didn't respond to the request. Jesus then eventually comes to Bethany. He comes too late. He has a conversation with Martha, and then he has a conversation with Mary. And so that's where I'm picking this up in verse 32. Mary and Jesus having this conversation. Jesus has finally shown up. Lazarus is dead. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, he fell at his feet, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus 
wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Do you see what these people are saying? Do you see what, what, what Mary is saying? First of all, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What she's saying is, Jesus, why didn't you answer? Where were you? You, you could have done this. I thought you loved us. You said you did, but you didn't come. I asked you in faith. I asked you in hope. I asked you in tears. Where were you, Jesus? Why didn't you come? It would have been so easy. You healed, you, you opened the eyes of the blind. You do miracles for other people. Why not for me? Where were you? Why did you say no? These are all the questions that, that we have, questions you've asked, questions that I have asked. It's like even the people who are observing notice this in verse 37. I mean, couldn't this guy who healed the blind man, couldn't he have done this? I mean, they're even confused. Why, Why didn't he come and heal the guy? He could do it. And his sisters asked him to. What in the world is going on? Well, I think what Jesus is doing is he wants to show Mary and Martha a better way. Mary and Martha have it in their mind the best way this is going to work out. It's Jesus, you come and heal Lazarus before he dies. But Jesus has something better in mind. It's no, I'm not going to come and heal him before he dies. He's going to die and then I'm going to come and raise him from the dead. That's the better way. That's what I'm going to do. And so that's what happens. He comes late. We know the rest of the story. And Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave. And certainly he comes walking out. And it's this unbelievable, miraculous event. Jesus did something better. Mary and Martha didn't understand it, didn't see it. They were overcome with sorrow. But just as it says at the beginning of John 11, when Jesus first heard of Lazarus' illness, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What Jesus is saying is there's something more important at stake here. There's a better way for this to happen, and this better way is going to give glory to the Son of God. That's his chief aim. That's Jesus' chief aim in your life and in my life and in the lives of Mary and Martha. It's to bring glory to him. And sometimes for God to get all the glory, it means that things don't work out exactly as we intend and as we wish. But I assure you, friends, whatever is good for God's glory is good for you. Ultimately, it's good for you. This is the way Tim Keller says it. I think it's helpful. God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything that he knew. We can't see things from the beginning to the end. We don't know God's long-term purposes. We don't know the future and what is going to happen and what God needs to do now to prepare us for what is to come. We don't know any of those things. God does. And when he acts in certain ways, he's acting in a way that is good for his glory and for you. Jonathan Edwards says this, God can sometimes better answer the desires and good end that we have in prayer another way. If our end be our own good and happiness, God can better answer that end in giving something else even than the very thing that we ask. God has something better. He's got a better way. 
I know that can be hard to understand. You can't understand why what you have in mind is not the best way. But prayer, friends, is an interaction with a person. We, we can't forget that. Prayer is, is not a mechanism to get what we want. You know, sometimes when people pray and the prayer is not answered, they say, prayer doesn't work. It didn't work. You know, it's like putting, again, a quarter in a vending machine and then the chips don't come out. We say it doesn't work. It's not, well, that's not the way prayer is. It's not a mechanism whereby we do this and then God does that. Prayer, it's a personal relationship. You're speaking to somebody, just like any other personal relationship that you have with anybody. Even the people that you love the most in that personal relationship, you're going to have occasions where what they want is not what you want. And there's a disagreement, so to speak. So C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, prayer is fundamentally, it's request. The essence of request, as distinct from compulsion, is that it may or may not be granted. And if an infinitely wise being listens to the requests of finite and foolish creatures, of course he will sometimes grant and sometimes refuse them. The advantage with, with God is that when we have our disagreements with other individuals, we don't really know what is best. Maybe our spouse is one thing and we think another thing and we say, okay, well, I'll, I'll let you have your way, but we don't really know if it's best. But with the Lord, when he has a disagreement, it's, it's always best. His denials are always best, just as was the case with Mary and Martha. There was a better way, but then there's a third reason perhaps why God would say no to your prayers, and that is to accomplish something great. So let's turn to Mark 14 for our last passage, our last example of unanswered prayer. It's on page 497 of the paperback Bibles. Uh, this is Jesus in the garden. He's preparing to go to the cross. Peter, James, and John are with him. This is the place where Jesus goes and he offers up this prayer. Mark 14, starting in verse 36. He said, Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. That's his disciples. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. If there's one person who had the right to expect that every one of his prayers would be answered, it certainly is the Lord Jesus Christ the sinless Son of God, the one in whom the Father was well pleased, the one on whose lips there was no deceit found. And what is Jesus' prayer? He comes to the Father, verse 36, and he says, Lord, please take this cup from me. Please remove this cup. 
What does he mean by that? What's the cup? The cup is an Old Testament imagery. It's found in Jeremiah 25 and Isaiah 51. And in the Old Testament, we find that the cup represents the wrath of God. What Jesus is anticipating here, he's looking forward to the cross. He knows where he is headed, that he's going to go lay down his life and be hung up on this cross where all of the anger of the Father would be poured out on him, where all the punishment that is deserved by all humanity would be poured out on him, where the curse of humanity's rebellion against God would all be poured out on him. And Jesus is anticipating this, and he says, Father, If there's another way, would you take this cup from me? Galatians 3 talks exactly about this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus is about to be hanged on a tree to suffer the curses of God. So he prays, oh, can this hour pass from me? The end of verse 35. Verse 36, take this cup from me. Verse 39, He says he prays the same words again, says the same words. He's asking, just like Paul did over and over again. He's pleading with the Father, please let this cup pass from me. But then we get to verse 41, and he says, it is enough. It's like, I've prayed enough. I've got my answer. Because he looks and he sees Judas coming, his betrayer. He sees the soldiers coming. They're coming to arrest him. It's time. He knows. Verse 41 and verse 42, it's Jesus' way of saying, I know what the Father has said. His answer is no. Even Jesus had his prayer denied. Even Jesus knows what it's like to have his prayer unanswered. The answer is no, Jesus, you're going to go to the cross. And so once Jesus receives that answer, what does he do? Verse 42, rise, let us go. He's he's ready. He accepts the will of the Father. He said earlier, not my will, but yours be done. He's now ready to submit himself to the Father, even though he has just prayed that it would be changed, and the answer was no. And now the whole purpose we see, as we know the whole story, Jesus goes to that cross, and he hangs there, and he sheds his blood, and he yields up his spirit, and he dies, and he gets laid in a tomb, and he's raised up from the dead on the third day on the first Easter morning, and through that he accomplished something truly great, didn't he? He accomplished the forgiveness of sins for you and me. He accomplished the redemption of our bodies. He defeated the powers of evil. He dealt Satan a decisive blow. He triumphed over the powers of death. He defeated the powers of sin. He did all that is necessary to renew the entire cosmos. That's what he did in his life death and resurrection something great came out of what Jesus did and it came through an unanswered prayer isn't that amazing that an unanswered prayer is at the very fulcrum and pivot of the gospel the father said no to the son and the son got up and said yes to the father and went to the cross so that we can now know that because the Father said no to his Son, that he will always say yes to you. In some way, his answer to you is yes. When you go to him and you cry out to him for forgiveness of sins, you cry out to him to be among his people, you cry out to him for eternal life, you plead with him for forgiveness and for salvation, 
The whole reason why that answer from God to you will be yes is because the father said no to his son. The gospel is centered on an unanswered prayer. And God did something great, much greater than anybody anticipated in saying no to his son. So, why has God not answered your prayer? In your own specific situation, your own particular circumstances, I I can't tell you that. It might be because he wants to teach you something. It might be because he has a better way that you haven't seen. It might be because he wants to accomplish something great, something you never anticipated through you for the sake of his kingdom. I don't know, but whatever the reason is, friends, I know it's not because he's forgotten you. And it's not because he's against you. And it's not because he's not listening to you. Because he loves you. I know he loves you. Because of what Jesus was willing to do in rising up, even in the face of an unanswered prayer, and going to the cross for you. He loves you. I know that. I know that for sure. So, let me sum this up by reading this poem. It comes out of this book by D.A. Carson on prayer. Um, I think this sums up very well what God is perhaps doing with our unanswered prayers. He asked for strength that he might achieve. He was made weak that he might obey. He asked for health that he might do greater things. He was given infirmity that he might do better things. He asked for riches that he might be happy. He was given poverty that he might be wise. He asked for power that he might have the praise of men. He was given weakness that he might feel the need of God. He asked for all things that he might enjoy life. He was given life that he might enjoy all things. He has received nothing he asked for, but all that he hoped for. His prayer is answered. So we're going to finish our last sermon in this series as we have been so far with the Lord's Prayer. If you please stand. Let's read this together from Matthew 6. Musicians, you can come forward. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.